Hi, I'm Dennis Hester, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist Church Watauga, and we are grateful that you have tuned in to listen to these messages, either through our podcast or on our website. And as you listen to these, our prayer is that you would hear the Lord speak to you from His Holy Word. If you're interested in learning more about the church, you can get on our website at fbcwatauga.org. From there, there's a place where you can plan a visit, you can learn more about our beliefs. You can also request prayer through the prayer request page. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. The most important thing that I'd communicate to you is as you listen to God's Word, that you find a place to get plugged into a local congregation, whether it's here at First Baptist or another local church where you live. If you'd like information or would like us to help you find a church home, uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. And you can contact us through our Facebook page. So God bless you as you listen to His Word, and may the Lord encourage you in your walk. It is good to be back in the building with y'all, and uh, some of you uh, weren't able to come last week, so this is your first time back. Now, I, I understand that uh, it is still not the same. Uh, we are, you know, we're scattered between pews. Some of y'all noticed your pew is blocked off during the second service, and so it's got you a little discombobulated there, and uh, you know, it's, it, it's just what we're dealing with as we walk through this, but it is... I. Even though we're not full, uh, as I told the, those in the first service, I'll pretty well guarantee you that if this is your first time back, you are worshiping with more people in the building than you have been for the last couple months. And so it is good to be back together as a church family and worship. Also told them that this is not all that uh, completely out of the ordinary for me in some ways. When I was pastoring at First Baptist Church May, uh, the community had something that are called cemetery decorating days. Do any of y'all know what those are, okay? Uh, for those that don't know what those are, uh, Texas honestly used to be made up of a whole lot more towns and communities than it is now. And historically, really, it kind of followed after World War II, a lot of uh, men came back from war and they had seen a big world out there and they realized they could make more money working in bigger cities. And a lot of the small towns that are scattered all throughout the countryside died away. And people move to more centralized locations. You drive out through West Texas now where there might have been 30, 40 towns back in the 1920s and 30s. Now you've got the one big county seat and that's it. Now people move to centralized location. Well, what was left out there were the cemeteries. And families will still go back to their cemeteries. And, and uh, so you don't have a lot of financial support. And so what they would do is once a year, they would have a day where they would all come together. People would, people would drive and they'd bring their trailers. They'd bring their Winnebago's and they would camp out there at the cemeteries. And they would uh, spend the weekend cleaning it up. They would mow. They would weed eat. They'd put flowers out. They would fix the, you know, the, the rose gardens. They'd, they'd spend the weekend doing that. And then on Sunday morning, they'd, they'd all go to church in a special service. Then they'd have a big dinner on the grounds. Now, in all honesty, that's one part I liked because I got invited to all of them through the month of May and the first week of June. But what happened was my church members would disappear first week of May, I'd been pastoring in May about uh, seven months or so, all of a sudden we come to church, we've got half of our church members there. Where'd the rest of them go? Well, they're out at uh, Pleasant Valley, or Wo Wo Wolf Valley was the first one, first week of May, Wolf Valley Cemetery Day. The what? I'd never heard of a cemetery decorating day in my life. So all through the month of May, we would have 
half attendance, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. And uh, had to kind of get used to that. Well, I was preaching one of those Sundays, and one of my deacons uh, comes up to me uh, before the service, and he said, you know, Pastor, if uh, I go out to feed my cows and only half of the cows show up, I don't leave the whole load of hay. And, and uh, I looked at him, and I knew what he was telling me. He basically was telling me there's only going to be half of the, the people here, so I should only preach half a sermon. Well, I thought about that because that bothered me. I didn't know what to say right away. But as I began to think about that, I thought that's really not the best illustration for this circumstance. A better illustration would be, say we're going to have a big fellowship. And we're going to have a, a, you know, a, a great time together as a church family. And uh, Joyce Moon always bakes some of the best pies for our church fellowships. And, and she'll bake coconut cream pies. And, and she'll have that, uh, what dad called calf slobber all over the top of them. And sprinkle with coconut. And she'll make lemon. And she'll make, make chocolate pies. And I love Joyce's pies. But imagine Joyce finds out there's not going to be as many people here that day. And so what she decides is she's still going to bring four pies, but she's only going to put in half the ingredients. She's going to leave out the sugar. She's going to leave out the coconut. And she's going to leave out the milk. And she's going to put half the ingredients in. And then she's only going to bake it for half the right amount of time and brings those pies up here. Well, I'm going to tell Joyce that is not a good idea at all. When you bring me my pie, it needs to have all the ingredients on it. So it doesn't matter how many of y'all show up on a given Sunday, you're going to get the whole load, all right? You're going to get the whole sermon. And uh, we're going to, that's actually a pretty good illustration of today's passage. Because today, we're looking at James's letter to the church. We're continuing that series, and we're looking at chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, which is a notoriously difficult passage for us to get a handle on and for us to understand. And there's a reason for it. James is dealing with somebody's half-baked faith. They basically decided that they only needed half of their walk with the Lord. And he's going to deal with that issue. Now, this is a passage that caused Martin Luther, the great reformer, to refer to the epistle of James as the epistle of straw. In fact, at one point, at the beginning of one of his commentaries, he said that he wished James could be torn from his Bible and thrown in the fireplace. At another point, he relegated it to the, the appendix of his, uh, uh, of his New Testament. And the reason for that is Martin Luther had grown up in a Catholic church that had majored on works-based religion where your salvation came through doing good deeds. Your salvation actually came through meeting the rules and regulations of the Catholic Church, okay? If you do this, you'll gain a certain amount of grace. If you fulfill this sacrament, you'll gain a little bit more grace. If you fulfill this sacrament, you'll gain a little bit more grace. And if you fulfilled the sacraments, then God would give you a measure of grace. That grace would cover your sin, and, and at the end of your life, you'd be allowed into heaven if you didn't... If you didn't obey enough of the sacraments, then uh, you might go to purgatory until somebody prayed you out. Or one of the things that Martin Luther thought was most egregious, and I happen to think so too, is uh, somewhere along in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church came up with what's called indulgences, where somebody could pay the priest or pay, give money to a monastery or give money to a, a nunnery, and, and they would take your loved one's name, your loved one that was in purgatory, and they would pray for them 
until they got out of purgatory. And as long as you gave gave enough money to the priest, you'd get more prayer for your loved one. Or indulgences also work for me. If I I just did too much sin against God, I'd just pay the priest and he'd pray for me and erase my sin. And so it was an egregious works-based religion that Martin Luther came out of. And so when he comes out of that and he begins to understand God's uh, word, he begins to understand the New Testament teaches salvation by grace through faith. Martin Luther loved the writings of the Apostle Paul. But he struggled a little bit with what James is saying here. And a lot of people do. Because it seems that James and Paul are kind of saying two different things. That's why I want to spend some time with this. And we're going we're gonna to look at this text a little bit differently than I normally preach a sermon. Normally we'll have three or four points and, because you walk through the text in that way. James does something different here. James has one point and he lays out his thesis five times. Twice with rhetorical questions and three times with direct statements. So as we read this, you'll see him say the same thing over and over and over. And he makes that point five times and then he uses illustrations to help us understand it. So let's read the text and then I'm gonna, we're going to jump into this, as I said, in a little bit different way than we normally do. Scripture says in James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? How can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks food, daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, for those who grew up in a time where you were told that all you have to do to be saved is ask Jesus into your heart, this is a disconcerting passage to some extent. Well, the problem is not with this passage, it's with what you've been told. Because coming to to a relationship with Jesus Christ is more than just an intellectual belief. It requires change of life. And so... What we see, what I want to do is there's three key words that I want to touch on here. And so the, the, the three points that are going to be quite a bit different than what you're used to. The first one, we're going to unpack those three key words. The first key word is the word that's translated one of you. It's actually translated one in verse 16, okay? It says, and one of you says to them. There's a, there's a little Greek word that is tis. It's a, 
In English, we would say it's T-I-S, okay? And, and what it means is it's usually translated someone or something or anyone or anything. It could be anybody. We translate it like that. In this case, in the Christian Standard Bible, it's just simply translated one, understanding that it's, it's one of the people out there. And the reason this is important, we, we want to understand who is it that James is writing to? Why, why is he dealing with this issue the way he's dealing with it? Well, Apparently, he, he wasn't just writing to anybody, he was writing to somebody in the congregation. Somebody among his church, one of the teachers more than likely, was beginning to teach that all you have to do is believe. And that's enough. You don't have to have a changed life, you don't have to do anything different, just believe. And as long as you believe, then you're going to be okay with God. And, and, and so there is a false Doctrine that's going around that, that you're simply saved by believing something in your head. And James is going to deal with that issue. And so who is it that he's writing to? He's, he's writing to the church, but he's writing to address a false doctrine. Now, one of the things that, that I, I spoke about a lot in, when, in the first service was there is a, a, a disconnect that people make, like Martin Luther did, between Paul and James. Uh, there's, there's a lot of scholars out there that struggle with that. You know, is Paul teaching one thing and James teaching something else? I don't believe it. that is the case at all. And we're going to see why here as we look at these next two words. Paul and James are simply teaching the same truth with a little bit of a different language. They're using words differently. And, and so they're kind of looking at a coin from two different sides. It, it can be a dollar bill and, and I would hold it up to one side and, and I'd say, what, what's this What's this picture of? And y'all would say a president. And I'd look at the back of it and I'd say, no, it's a building. Well, it's the same dollar, but we're looking at it from two different perspectives. And that's kind of what James and Paul are doing as they address this issue of what it truly means to have a relationship with Christ. So the next two words that we want to look at are faith and works. Those are the two key words in this text. The first one is the word faith. That word appears almost a dozen times in this short text. Uh, it appears over and over and over. It's the Greek word pistis. And the, the word, depending on how you use it, can have a little bit of a different shade of meaning. For James, it means to believe something. And that's not an unusual way to use this word. Faith oftentimes is, is translated, it's understood as a belief. You, you believe something in your head. We know that James is using it that way by the illustrations that he uses. In particular, the one that references demons. He says demons believe. Demons have faith, okay? They believe something. But even the demons shudder. We understand that, that the demonic realm does not propose to uh, to have any type of relationship with Christ as their Lord, okay? Uh, demons aren't saved. <laughs> demons aren't born again. They believe that there is a God, and they even take it a step further, see? Uh, the demons don't, don't just believe there's a God. They, they know that there's just one God. <laughs> that was an issue in their time. Uh, you know, people would, would worship multiple gods. And James is saying, look, even the demons believe that there's one God. And they shudder. Faith for James... That, that word faith, he's using it like we would use the word belief. The apostle Paul consistently uses the word faith differently. 
Paul uses the word faith to indicate both that you believe and you invest your life in, as in trusting. In fact, oftentimes when we, when we describe faith and we look at the faith that Paul talks about, we talk about uh, getting in the boat with Jesus. Not just believing that, that he can take care of you, but putting your life in his hands. And so when Paul uses the word faith, in almost every context, he has a different shade of meaning to the word faith. For Paul, it's belief and trusting, surrendering your life over to it. So uh, there's two different ways that they use that language. For James, when he uses that word here, he uses it to indicate just belief, intellectual understanding or intellectual assent. The third word that appears here is works, and it's the Greek word erga or ergos. And, and James and Paul both use that word a little bit differently. In Paul's language, Paul always uses that word in his doctrinal discussions or his theological discussions to, to deal with uh, the idea of being saved through the law. Works of the law is a phrase that you see Paul use over and over and over. So when Paul says that you're saved by faith alone, you're not saved of works, what Paul's talking about is you're not saved by keeping a religious system. You're not saved by making the sacrifices. You're not saved by obeying the rules. But Paul never teaches that your life won't be changed. James says what, what has happened is some people have taken this understanding of salvation by faith and they have twisted that to mean that there's not gonna be any change in your life. And James says that is a lie. And so James isn't directly addressing this theology of Paul. And there's a big question about whether James was written first or some of Paul's theology was out there first. Was James trying to address Paul? It's clear that James is not disagreeing with Paul. James is disagreeing with a misuse of Paul's teaching. He's, mis he's dealing with a, dis a misuse of that doctrine. And proof that Paul essentially teaches the same thing can be found in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is teaching that we are saved by grace. And Paul is teaching that, that when you're baptized into Christ, that you, know, you, you, you come to a relationship with him. In Romans chapter 6, he says, okay, now that you know that you're saved by grace through faith, what about sin? Should I continue in sin so that grace can abound? Should I just keep on sinning so I can get more grace? And Paul says, God forbid. The reason that Jesus died was so that you could be set free from sin. We just sang about it. The reason that Jesus shed his blood on the cross was to free you from that lifestyle and you could live a changed new life. He didn't die so that you could go on doing the same old thing that you used to do. So ultimately, Paul teaches the exact same truth that James teaches. He just does it in a different way. Now go back to this word real quick because James uses that Greek word erga or ergos differently. He uses it to indicate a life that has changed in particular in how you treat people. As you study the, the book of James here, you study this letter, you'll notice that, well, first of all, right here in this text, James uses this illustration. Well, what if your brother or sister is hungry and they're without clothing and, and you don't do anything about it? You're not walking with the Lord. You're not showing that you truly have a relationship with God. How you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ will be different if you truly have a relationship with Christ. But James also says that your language will be different. The words that come out of your mouth will be different. 
He also teaches uh, that you'll treat people differently, that you won't discriminate. We talked about last week. You won't treat people differently based on the color of their skin or whether they're rich or poor, just what you see on the outside. So James teaches us that when you truly have faith and works tied together, when you truly are a follower of Jesus Christ, your faith is going to be put on display in how you live out your life. James doesn't say it's going to be put on display by keeping the rules and regulations of religion. Jesus says, or James says, your, your faith is going to be put on display in how you treat other people. Are you loving others? So James, he kind of goes through that in his practical book here. We call it practical Christianity. He talks about you know, how you treat other people. He talks about being careful about your tongue. He talks about all of those things. And ultimately, Paul does the same thing. Paul says, if you truly are born of God, your life's going to look different. Your life is going to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. You're going to show love, love, <laughs> peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Your life is going to reflect a different display. It's going to put on display God's attributes. And Paul even goes so far to say, and if you are continuing to live in immorality, and if you are continuing to be a gossip and a backbiter, and you're continuing to be greedy, you can be assured that these things are not of God. And those people who live in that world will not see the kingdom of God. So ultimately, Paul and James end up saying the same thing in two different ways. So Let's look at the, the, there's two more points I want to make, and and this is once again kind of two things, uh, the same point in two different ways, and that's how James lays this out. Second then is an unchanged life is a sign of dead faith. In verse 17, in the same way faith, if it does not have works, is by itself dead. And he goes on to emphasize that in different ways. Look at verse 26. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You can say you believe something, but if your life is not changed by it, it's useless. James would say, if you say that you believe in Jesus, but your life does not reflect it, it's a lie. It's a dead faith. You may believe in your head, but you're not one of his. I used an illustration earlier. I'm going to actually pick on somebody different today. I'm going to pick on Bethany today. I used Corey earlier because it's just a great illustration. We all understand this. Bethany, imagine uh, you're at a, a big event for college students, and you meet this really good-looking guy. And you just are so excited, and, and y'all begin to talk. You begin to Facebook, you know, message each other, and, and then you begin to FaceTime, and, and uh, you know, he goes out on a date with you, and, and you find out that just recently he's broken up with another woman. And so he has this ex back there, but he, he tells you that everything's finished with her, okay? I, I don't see her anymore. I don't have anything to do with her. And so y'all go out on, a, on a, just a little coffee date. You go out to Starbucks, and you're just beginning to fall in love with him. And you just think he's wonderful. And, and he's, he's falling in love with you. And he's, Bethany, man, you're the greatest thing. I just love you. And, and you're so sweet. And I just want to spend time with you. And then the next day, you're driving by Starbucks, and you, kinda, you go in to get your, uh, your drink. And he's sitting over there with his ex, drinking a coffee with her. And they seem all 
lovey-dovey. And you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And he sees you, oh, 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 Bethany, I'll call you later. So he calls you later and he promises. He says, now, Bethany, I just want you to understand, you know, we, I was just telling her that it's over. I'm not gonna have anything to do with her anymore. It's over and I love you and you're so wonderful and I wanna be with you. And then the next day, am I walking off camera? Oh man, I thought I was going too far. The next day, two days later, you go to a church service and you, uh, you're sitting back about the fifth row and you look up there and lo and behold, he's on the second row with his arm around his ex-girlfriend. And you're like, what in the world is he doing? He tells me he loves me, but nothing in his life has changed. He just keeps going back to his ex. You'd call him a liar, wouldn't you? You'd say, he, he doesn't love me. He can't leave his old ways. He just keeps doing that. He may say something with his mouth, but he doesn't mean it. Folks, that's what faith without a changed life is in James's view. If all you do is say it, but nothing's changed, it is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. If you truly are born again, I had an old deacon I'd go share the gospel with and, and he'd talk about being born again and he, he talked about how uh, as a young man, he got down and he said these long legs, I got down on my knees and I prayed for Jesus to transform me and to change me and he said when I got up I was a different man. I was changed. I was born again. That's what it means to be born again. I lived a different life. I left my, for him, I left my drinking, rodeoing, womanizing career. And I started following Jesus. His life was changed. James will tell you that if you say, I believe in Jesus, you can even say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. Jesus shed his blood for me. Jesus rose again from the grave for me. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is coming back one day. You can believe all of that. And if you have not put your full faith and trust in him and your life has been transformed, it's meaningless. It's useless. Because true as we would understand, Paul teaches faith in Christ that transforms a life. Is trusting in Christ enough to put your life in his hands and your life will be changed. See, there's another way that we put it. Peter used this word a lot in his preaching. He said that you must repent from your old way of life and turn toward Christ. You may be living life a certain way and, and you know, you're, you've, you've got this issue and you've got this issue and you've got this sin and you come to a place where you say, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give my life to you. I wanna follow you as my savior. Peter says that when you do that, you not only believe, but you repent of your sins. And that word repent means to turn and walk away from, to, to make a transformation. It, it indicates a change of life a changed lifestyle. That's what James means. You, when, when Jesus asked Peter, come follow me and I'm gonna make you a fisher of men, Peter dropped his nets and left his fishing boat and followed Jesus. When he asked Matthew, the tax collector, to come and follow me and be my disciple, Matthew got up from his table, left his job and followed Jesus. If you truly are gonna follow Christ, there's gonna be a change 
in your lifestyle. And James would say, if you say you're a believer in Christ, but you haven't changed, there's no difference in your life, then you're a liar and your faith is dead. The other side of that coin, so that side is an unchanged life is a sign of dead faith. The other side of that, true faith for James will lead to meaningful action. You'll do things differently. And I wanna, I wanna give you some positive here, some, some things in particular, because what James is gonna say, that James says is gonna happen is you're gonna start loving people. You're gonna, when you see a brother or sister in need and they're hungry and they need clothing, you're gonna take care of them because you love them. There's been such a change in your heart. God has changed you from the inside out that you're gonna live life differently and you're not gonna be able to pass them by anymore. You're gonna wanna do something for them. You're gonna wanna take care of them. James is gonna tell us in chapter three that you're, you're gonna quit gossiping about people. You're gonna quit telling harmful things. You're gonna find out how much damage your tongue can do and you're gonna quit doing it. You're gonna quit talking bad about people like that. You're gonna watch your language. You're gonna quit, as we talked about last week. You're gonna stop judging people by their cover. You're gonna stop uh, prejudging someone, showing prejudice based on their skin color or whether they have money or whether they don't. You're gonna stop doing that because you're gonna learn to see their heart. You're gonna learn to see them as God sees them. So what's gonna happen when you truly have uh, put your full faith in Christ and you have, you, you've become one of his children, you will live a different kind of life. And if you haven't seen that change, if your life has not changed, James is gonna warn you, you better pay attention because it's, it, what that indicates is there has not been a real change in your heart. You have truly not been born again. You have not been saved by God's grace and transformed. Now, how does that flesh itself out? How does that apply to us as followers of Christ? I think in a couple ways. First and foremost, if, if you don't see the Holy Spirit, you don't sense the Holy Spirit regularly working in your life to change you, to prod you, to point out sin and shortcoming and areas in your life that, that, that need to be conformed to the image of Christ, you better pay attention. You better listen. Because for every believer in Jesus Christ, everybody who truly is a born again believer, scripture says that the spirit of the living God has come to reside in you. And with the spirit of the living God in you, he is not gonna tolerate your sin. He's not going to tolerate you doing things the way you used to do. This doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you're not ever going to sin, that you're never going to fall. But what it does mean is that there's going to be a change inside of you. And it does mean that when you sin and when you fall and when you fail, the spirit is going to speak to you and you're not going to be able to stand it. And so you're going to want to deal with it. So if you're, if you're a believer and you're not sensing the Spirit of God continuing to conform you into the image of Christ, you need to get down on your knees and seek the Lord because what, what likely has happened is your heart has become hardened because of continued disobedience in some area of your life. You've rationalized away your sin so much that you're not listening, you're not paying attention, or maybe you're just not spending time with the Lord. 
You're not spending time in his word. Because honestly, the Lord will continue that work in our lives until we take our last breath on this earth and our first breath in heaven. None of us are gonna reach perfection to where we don't need the Spirit of God continually tweaking and changing our lives. I told the group earlier, I said, you know, a lot of times I'll, in a worship service, during the worship time, as I'm out there worshiping, the Lord begins to deal with me personally. Maybe it's something in the song that we, that we sang, or maybe it's one of the passages of Scripture that Matthew read, where the Lord begins to tweak my heart and begins to deal with me. One of the most uh, difficult or, or weirdest things for me is every once in a while I'll listen to one of my sermons. I don't like listening to myself. And of course, now we've been recording them. But uh, I remember one time in particular, I was still pastoring at May. And back then, our, our sermons were recorded on uh, cassette tapes. In fact, when we first started recording them on cassette tapes, we put them out uh, on a, uh, on the, in the foyer on a desk, and we asked people to, to put a quarter in a coffee can out there just to help cover the cost of the cassette. And one of my deacons told me that was the best money he'd ever spent. He said it was a whole lot cheaper than the prescription sleeping pills that his doctor had given him. So one day I picked up one of those old sermons, and, and I don't know why. So I'm going to listen to how these are coming out. I hadn't listened to one in months. Plugged into my cassette player, and, and I was driving up to the house, and we lived at that point. It was about a 10-minute drive, and so I'm listening to myself preach, and God begins to get a hold of me. And I pull into the shed, uh, an old tractor shed that, that I parked my truck in, and I sat there, and I listened until the end of that sermon with tears in my eyes because the Holy Spirit was using his word and my own words to convict my heart. I will to tell you, you're messed up if you get convicted by your own preaching like that. God was dealing with me. I've been pastoring 15 years almost. If we ever get to a point where we don't shed a tear for our sin, we don't get convicted over our sin, and we need to get on our knees and ask God to do a work in our hearts and soften our hearts again. In addition to that, though, if you could say, you know, I, I, I said I believe in Christ. I've believed in Christ since I was a little kid. I, I can remember the day I was baptized but you'd have to say, Pastor, I don't think my life really looks any different than it ever had. Or my life doesn't look any different from my friends at school or my coworkers. I, I, I do all the same things they do. My language is the same as theirs. I, I, my life isn't really different. I'd suggest to you that you better reexamine whether or not you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you cannot, it is impossible to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and not live a different kind of life. James says that that would be what he calls, I'm gonna use a different word, belief without works, because that's what James is saying. When you have faith without works, faith that has no change, has, has brought no change in your life, faith that has had no power to influence how you actually act, then you truly aren't a child of God. And you need to get down on your knees and seek forgiveness and repent of your sin and turn from your sin and turn toward Christ and commit that you're going to follow him from this day forward and your life will be changed.